Thanks for listening and sharing Our Body Politic. As we grow and evolve our show, we need lots of input from listeners like you. So I want to ask you a small favor. After you listen today, please head over to Apple Podcasts on your phone, tablet, laptop, or anywhere you listen and leave us a review. We read those because your ideas matter to us. Thanks so much. This is Our Body Politic. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. This week, we're starting the show with our roundtable, Sipping the Political Tea. We want to make sure you get the real talk from us right away. We've got a special collaboration on our roundtable this week with a podcast that I am a huge fan of, The Double Shift. It's a narrative show that challenges the status quo ideals of motherhood in America, and they've just done a two-part series on mental health and motherhood. My guests are The Double Shift's creator, Katherine Goldstein. Hey, Katherine. Hey, Fry. And her co-host, Angela Garbez. Hey, Angela. Hi, Farai. So, Catherine, tell us about this series and how it came to mind and what you're covering. So, uh, in 2020, Angela and I were having a conversation about our show, and it, it sort of naturally came up that we both had started taking antidepressants during 2020, that during the pandemic, for the first time as adults. And we realized we'd been having all sorts of conversations together and trying to have, you know, uncover all sorts of angles on motherhood, but had sort of never chosen to share this detail with each other. And we kind of wanted to unpack why, and we realized that there might be a lot more there and a lot of other people who were having new um, mental health experiences and struggles. And we, we thought that there was definitely fodder to do some some real reporting and hear from listeners. Angela, how did you pick up on that thread? We both knew that we wanted to cover mental health, maternal mental health, um, but it's a really big topic. And so as we were figuring that out, we realized, you know, we wanted to share our stories, not because we think our stories are so extraordinary. I mean, they are important, but we wanted to kind of create a space for people to see that they're not alone, right? That it's safe to share these stories and that other people are going through it. And then we decided, you know, we also wanted to hear from an expert because, as Catherine and I will both be quick to tell you, we are not mental health experts ourselves. Yeah, Catherine, how did you deal with with that question of like talking about a really important issue that intersects personal and medical without claiming expertise that that you don't have? Yes, we're we're very clear that we are journalists, not trained mental health providers. But I think, you know, it, it also touches on a lot of media aimed at moms is about advice and about fixing moms and, you know, quick fixes. And that wasn't the conversation we wanted to have. We wanted to allow, you know, an expert to provide context, not tell everyone, you know, here are a bunch of quick tips and tricks, but really sort of listen to what is being said and sort of help us think about it in a different way. Also tell us, Catherine, about your listener named Marika, who called about her decision to up her dose of Zoloft. Here's a clip of her from The Double Shift. As my friend likes to say, if your neurotransmitters aren't working, store-bought is fine. 
<laughs> That's a great line. So, so tell us, tell us more about that conversation. So, we asked our community at the start of this year to send us voice memos about their mental health and what their mental health journeys had been like over the course of the pandemic, and. What we heard was a lot of conversations about feelings alone in deciding to start medication, up medication, seeking out therapy, restarting therapy. And a lot of this felt like these individual personal decisions rather than part of a response to all sorts of systemic failures that mothers have borne the brunt of and being asked to do impossible things. I mean, so much of motherhood in America is about some of the really damaging ideas about is about making it on your own. And that's also about our mental health. Like people are sort of conditioned to believe that our mental health is private and that this is just a personal struggle or a personal failure in response to actual systemic failures. In that same story, we hear that one of the things weighing on her mind was how much household work she had to do. And Angela In 2020, before the pandemic, Gallup found that women in heterosexual couples continue to do more housework than men. This question of how you prioritize the pressures that mothers are under with household work, job work, raising children, Zoom school, et cetera, you know, how do you make sense as a mother yourself, a working mother yourself, and co-host of The Double Shift of some of these pressures? Right. So, I mean— All parents and mothers are working parents, whether or not they have jobs outside of the home or not. You can't say, like, one is more important than the other, because I think for people, like, that's a personal decision that gets made, or sometimes it's not a decision that can get made because economics is, like, the number one factor. But in terms of mental health and why we wanted to do this series and why we had this conversation is that I think it's important to kind of take that step back and that bird's eye view. There is all this work There's this cascade of caregiving and housework and professional responsibility that people are drowning in, along with a sense of grief. Um, It's totally overwhelming, and that has mental health effects. Whether that is just sort of a general overwhelm and anxiety or, you know, a condition or, you know, a diagnosis of depression— And it's important to remember that if mental health underlies everything we do in our daily life, if you are depressed, getting up out of bed can be really difficult, right? Washing the dishes, getting yourself to do that, it's not because you're tired. It's because you you can't. It is a struggle. And so if our mental health is not right, if we are not right, we can't do anything else. And if we are able to do those things, it comes at a cost. Um, so I think it's just important to, you know, mental health, we tend to separate that from our physical health. I think that they are tied. They are equally important. And we need to talk about prioritizing that aspect of our health, which makes it possible for us to do anything else. Angela, you also wrote for The Cut about mothers leaving the workforce. Your point was that this is not the whole story. What did you want to say? You know, the, it's I think arguably the biggest economic story of the year, right, is that 50% of the population is bearing the brunt of unemployment and diminished salaries. And so we get caught up in these statistics. You know, there are 4 million less women in the workforce than there were a year ago, right? Or in September, when schools started, hundreds of thousands of women dropped out of the workforce in a single month. And those statistics are important, but they can feel really 
anonymous, right? I think that those numbers are just the tip of the iceberg. We're not talking about the personal losses, the much harder thing. I'm interested in what is it that is not quantifiable or what at this point, I mean, is data not capturing, right? What is it, you know, that we would dismiss in some ways as anecdotal evidence, but that I think over the next few months and years, really, um, we're going to see women, you know, are not returning to the workforce. <laughs> and what is that going to do to their identity and sense of self? Like, in terms of mental health, like, this is really the beginning. You know, I think a lot of people have been high functioning and putting a lot of these issues aside or in the back of the brain because they just need to get things done. But this is going to come back. You know, <laughs> it's going to affect everyone. And I think we need to be having a conversation now to prepare ourselves for that. And Catherine, let me bring you in again. You're often talking on the double shift about how policy and economic priorities could support parents. We're seeing some real changes, at least for the meantime, in how the federal government is trying to resource parents. And and so what role do you think our conversations like your podcast and, and our private ones play in influencing these policies? Good public policy doesn't come out of nowhere. I mean, I think good public policy comes out of conversations and driving and a lot of behind-the-scenes work to lead to these moments. And I think we are at a turning point, potentially, of a transformative moment for uh, families, uh, for mothers, in terms of finally, finally, finally feeling like people with power in the federal government understand that this isn't personal problems. These aren't just individual choices. These need massive federal interventions, which a lot of the time has to do with money. So the child care tax credit is starting this July, which is really a revolutionary for America policy where families with children under 17 are getting between $250 to $300 a month, depending on the age and income. And that's almost every family in America is going to be getting that direct cash payments. So this is an experiment, finally, in understanding that it is expensive to raise children in America. And no, we can't do it on our own. And I think that this is a turning point in a consciousness, but there's a lot of hope that this could be permanent. But it's also just a marker in a much larger conversation about what kind of country we want to have do we want to have a country that has a sustainable birth rate? Do we want to have a country that treats um, families with dignity and allows them to thrive? So these are all just very, very important moments that we're, we're really at an inflection point. Angela, I'm going to come back to you. You open up on the topic of being from an immigrant family and being a woman of color and how that can get in the way of seeking mental health treatment. When did you realize this for yourself in your own life? And, and what would you like other women of color to know about how you process things? When Catherine and I talked about doing, you know, this these episodes on mental health, we talked about we wanted to talk about our own experiences with therapy. And um, I think Catherine was, I'm not, I don't think I'm putting words in her mouth when she was surprised and maybe even a little shocked when I said that I did not seek therapy out until I was about 40 years old. And I certainly knew that therapy existed. And I certainly knew people who had been in therapy. And I come from a Filipino family and I can only really speak to my experience, but I know that this is true for other people that I have spoken to. And we just didn't talk about mental health. We didn't talk about going to therapy and I think there's a variety of reasons. You know, like in my family, my parents were very focused. They came here with nothing. They came here alone. They were very focused on survival. 
And so sort of ingrained in that life was that you figured stuff out on your own and you solved problems. As I got older and I got to a place where I was like, I need help. So I want other people to realize, maybe even to understand, like, you make assumptions about yourself and other people and accessing mental health services. You think that's not for you. Like, it is. It's for everyone. I don't think there's anyone who couldn't benefit from a neutral listener who's there to affirm them <laughs> and give them tools to uh, face life in a better way and suffer less. But yeah, it's just a conversation that doesn't happen in many uh, communities. And we sort of have the onus on ourselves to prioritize mental health. And both of you interviewed Dr. Amber Thornton, a psychologist and motherhood wellness consultant, and she talked about the pressure that women of color, especially Black women, face to hold it all together when struggling. Here she is in your interview with her. People of color, women, are not often given the benefit of the doubt that we might see a white man be given. And so with that, there's this drive to continue to perform and push through because that's how you have learned to live or to make a living or to survive in this world. Um, if you cannot push through, then you cannot survive. And she goes on to talk about strong black woman syndrome, yes. you know, just a, kind of an informal name for, for you know, that song, I'm not your superwoman. I wish I could sing. I would sing it for you. <laughs> many of you know that song. But there's this idea that like black women and many other types of women of color and immigrant women have to put on the cape and do everything for everyone. Um, so, Angela, how can women of color advocate effectively for self-care? I mean, Audre Lorde wrote beautifully about self-care as a revolutionary act. Yeah, an act of political warfare, I believe, is what she said. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really, I think it's important to the idea then that, um, so when Dr. Amber talked about strong Black woman syndrome, she said that, you know, there's this idea that um, if I'm not strong, then I'm not going to be able to make it. Right. And I think we need to really start to reframe it that um, acknowledging that you need help, acknowledging that you can't do it alone, acknowledging vulnerability is actually the strength. Right. You need to be able to care for yourself in order to continue the work of caring for other people, showing up every day for yourself and then also, you know, like plotting the revolution. Like, women of color accomplish so many great things in being strong, but it it does come at a cost. And I want, you know, the next generation and I want women of color now to be able to live whole lives. And Catherine, what did you get out of this conversation with Dr. Thornton and from your listeners about, you know, being able to tell if you're okay or, or if you need help? Dr. Amber really provided some great baseline knowledge for us to start asking ourselves questions. And it's not necessarily always about being at a moment of crisis, but asking ourselves some questions about uh, where we are and, you know, being curious about ourselves, whether it's around our use of alcohol and marijuana, whether or not that is, you know, part of wellness and self-care or if that is something that has evolved into a problem. She really, I think, helped put into context that, yes, so many of these things feel personal. And I think a lot of times, again, moms are conditioned to feel like they have to take take so much on and that if they don't do it, no one else will. And it all comes down to them. And really trying to reframe some of those ideas to, to make it clearer that, as Angela said, asking for help is not a weakness. And also putting ourselves 
first, we had a conversation about her for some member episodes about the power of being selfish and about standing up for ourselves and how that as well is part of sort of a larger political act of not making ourselves small and and diminishing our needs. And that is also part of our own wellness and allowing ourselves to be okay. I thought that those were some really powerful takeaways that I took from Dr. Amber. Angela, I'm going to go back to you. In the first episode in this two-part series, you shared something really touching about how you felt like you'd lost sight of yourself as an individual. Have you had any luck in reconnecting? Oh, I'm on a journey. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's um, and that's something that therapy and medication has really helped me with. I mean, it's a moment that sticks with me when I went to see a new therapist and she asked me, you know, who are you? Tell me something that you like about yourself. And it took me like 20 to 30 seconds to think of anything. And the things that I thought of were, you know, I'm a good partner. I'm a good parent. And she was like, no, 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 that's not what I'm asking. Like, who are you? <laughs> and um, mm. it's, it's chilling, you know, and it's mm-hmm. I, it, it was sort of humiliating, too, you know, and also as like a feminist who's always like, you are never any less important than your children or your family. I was like, what what happened to me? Right. And those things like the way that we know ourselves, like we change and life's circumstances change um, and they have effects on you that maybe you don't realize. And I'm now on a combination of Lexapro and Wellbutrin. Um, what I feel like they have done is given me a chance and the space to refamiliarize myself with myself. It's it's just like Marika said, you know, sometimes the neurotransmitters are not working, um, but store-bought has worked out really well for me. I feel much more in touch with myself and I feel like it's been essential to me surviving what has been a really unsustainable way of life. Thank you so much, both of you, and appreciate everything that you've had to say. Grateful for your work on The Double Shift. So thanks again, and goodbye, Angela. Thank you, Farai. Take care. And bye, Catherine. Thanks for having us. That was co-host Angela Garbus and Catherine Goldstein of The Double Shift Podcast. Find The Double Shift wherever you find your podcasts. Jamel Bowie is a columnist for the New York Times opinion section and a CBS News analyst. He's also a full-time dad. He's currently taking time off work after the birth of his second child, and we are so grateful he still made time to stop by Our Body Politic to talk to us about the news, how he writes his fierce and informative columns, and the importance of parental leave to all parents. And just a note, Jamel's in Virginia and I'm in Maryland where the cicadas are in full effect, so you might hear them in the background of this interview. Welcome, Jamel. Thank you for having me. So let's just jump in with voting rights. Uh, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia said he won't support the For the People Act, one of two bills that Democrats are proposing to protect voting. How do you break that down with all of the work that you have done consistently on voting rights and, and the implications? You know, it's it's sort of hard to figure out where Manchin stands on all of this because his stated views are that voting rights are essential to democracy, that Congress has to act to protect them, and that he recognizes that um, 
Republicans in state legislatures are taking moves to curtail voting rights. But he also believes that any voting rights legislation must be bipartisan. Points three and four are kind of in conflict with each other. I think it's all incoherent, and I'm not really sure what his game is. We talk about voting rights as if they are essentially uncontroversial, that everyone believes that every American has the right to vote and should vote, but that's plainly not true. You have partisan interests against everyone voting, as we can clearly see. There are people with ideological views, uh, the idea that everyone, every American who is a citizen has an equal say in governing is something that they disagree with. I think we're seeing right now how when the rubber hits the road, there actually isn't a consensus for the political equality of all Americans. And the side that does believe that the right to vote ought to be protected has to recognize that this is going to be essentially a partisan opinion. You know, this question of consensus, of course, is really at the core of how many times we have had civil rights acts and we have battled with this in the modern era. And you wrote this column in March that started with Senator Raphael Warnock's speech calling voting rights today Jim Crow in new clothes. And then you ticked off history that I of I didn't know about the Civil Rights Act of 1875. So tell us why you chose to write about that and how you structure your columns. There's a professor at Georgetown, let me back up a little bit. There's a professor at Georgetown at the law school named Aderson Francois who wrote this great paper about basically the last class of African-American congressmen from the South after Reconstruction. By the next decade, most of them would have been, will be out of office. Uh, who were part of the debates over the Civil Rights Act of 1875. Now, if you if you don't know much about this law, it's basically what the Civil Rights Act of, eight, of 1964 was, just 100 years earlier. It outlaws discrimination in public accommodations. It's sort of the centerpiece of it, and then also has a bunch of enforcement mechanisms. So Americans came to sort of the how to deal with racial discrimination. They came to that answer pretty quickly, Um, There just wasn't the political will to make it stick in 1875. But there's a big congressional debate lasting several months um, over this bill. And so uh, Professor Francois basically recounts the contributions of African-American lawmakers to those debates. And they sound strikingly, although the language isn't modern, the sentiments are strikingly modern and and sound strikingly similar to our current debate. And so I've, I've been wanting to write about that for the longest time. And Senator Warnock's speech was basically like my excuse to um, bring this to the attention of more people, just as sort of part of my perennial project to remind people that like the questions and, and issues of American politics aren't as novel and new to us as we think they are, that we've been dealing with many of these questions for a very long time. And that previous generations of Americans who dealt with them have insights worth taking seriously. This may be a weird question, but what is the emotional labor of doing this work? I know that for me, sometimes as a journalist, I'm just like, I kind of am tired of staring into the void of American society when things get really heavy. And I'm also very joyful to engage with this country um, at other times. How do you process any emotions that you have about living through a time like this, which is which is definitely, for many of us, trying. I don't know if you find it so. 
I think I deal with it just by doing the work. Not necessarily that like my writing is cathartic for me, but at least being able to communicate things and tease things out in writing helps me process them. And it also just makes me feel like I'm, I'm doing something. So lately, over the last you know two years, I have simultaneously felt like my writing, just by virtue of having this column at the Times, is reaching more people, but also feeling like it's a little futile. So in recognizing that there's only so much I can do as far as national politics goes, I've really kind of in my personal life began to put a lot of energy into local politics and the stuff that's happening directly around me. And that has been a really important outlet for me. And the barrier to entry, especially in a place, I live in Charlottesville, Virginia, a place as small as this, the barrier to entry for getting into this stuff and have, making a difference is very low. I found it like the, a good a good outlet. And that interconnects with something else we really want to talk to you about, which is family. Um, I personally have loved reading your recipes for plant-based family dinners and you talking about your son. And now you have a second child and you're taking some leave to be a present parent. And I appreciate the fact that you give us a glimpse of yourself as a fully well-rounded person. So when you think about your family, how do you connect the intellectual work you're doing to your family life? Things are never completely siloed, but I tend to sort of keep family life like somewhat like mentally distinct from work life, just because I think in many journalists and writers will test to this, this is a profession that can kind of encompass, like <laughs> swallow your entire life if you let it. So I tend to keep those things separate. But I'll, you know, I'll say as a, as a parent now with a soon to be three year old who's very rapidly approaching the age where we can sort of like have conversations about stuff. I think there'll be more just sort of like cross-pollination, as it were, in terms of beginning to expose my son and soon enough my daughter to the concerns I have, which means sort of like, you know, taking history seriously, taking our family history and our family background seriously. I'm from Virginia, but my parents are from Georgia and Florida. We're descendants of enslaved people. And so it's very important to me for my kids to understand where they come from and understand not just sort of on an intellectual level, but like the actual land they come from. Tell us about you taking parental leave. How do you feel about it? And why are you doing it? Both my parents were in the military. And at various points, either my mom was deployed or my dad was deployed. So it'd be, you know, for most of my elementary school years to my middle school years, like for, you know, one year I might have my mom might be home most of the year and my dad out to sea. And another year, my dad might be home most of the year, my mom out to sea. And so just for me growing up, my understanding of like parental roles is that sort of like, oh yeah, both parents do everything. And I kind of want to have the same relationship with my kids that, you know, it's not going to be, I don't want my son to see my wife doing everything or even doing most things necessarily. And so with the birth of our daughter, I just saw that as an opportunity to be as helpful and supportive of a partner I can be to my wife, since childbirth is no joke, and also spend a lot more time with my son. I think it's just part of being a responsible partner, a responsible man, to not just 
share an equal part of the burden of managing a household, but to really take the initiative. Um, and taking parental leave was an opportunity to do that. Part of this week's show is a focus on childcare and families, how people have been coping with the pandemic and now transitioning out of the pandemic. And this has been a really traumatic time for a lot of parents who had to supervise Zoom school or Zoom pre-K or, or just change a lot of diapers while holding down a job in or outside of the house or losing a job. When you think through your journalistic lens as well as your personal lens about the intersections of public policy and families, what sorts of things are you keeping your eye on? Prior to having kids, I, you know, I'm, I'm a good social Democrat. I've always supported lots of support for families, but it was always very abstract. But having kids has been this experience. I'm a New York Times columnist. I make a very good salary. I have a lot of flexibility in my job. I have a lot of leave and sick time and vacation time. But even for like us, it's it's like hard to be a parent a month after having our son, I was like, how do people without these advantages even do this? And that was sort of a really radicalizing realization for me. I've kind of come away from both the experience of having kids and then sort of the experience the last year and a half of really seriously believing that the number one priority in terms of the American welfare state has to be comprehensive support for not just parents with children, but caregivers of all kinds, um, because our society is hostile to caregivers and into caregiving, whether it's parents and their children, children and their parents, whether it is people who do this for a living. And I think that's something that has to be changed. Jamel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That was Jamel Bowie. He's a New York Times opinion columnist and father of two. This week, we're focusing on the impact the pandemic has had on our mental health, and especially the children in our lives. Dr. Miguelina Herman is Director of Pediatric Behavioral Health Services at Montefiore Medical Group in New York. She oversees a program that treats 90,000 children across 19 primary care centers in the Bronx and Lower Westchester County. They offer mental health services for kids as part of their regular intake process, which helps them identify and reach more families in need. Dr. Herman, welcome to Our Body Politic. Thank you. Start out by giving us a little bit of an overview of the mental health questions that are coming up regarding children that you've treated during the last year of the pandemic. I'm going to break it down for you by age group. So our youngest patients are newborn babies. And so in that age range from newborn to, let's say, about five years, we see a lot of social isolation among new moms and other caregivers. And you can imagine if you have a new baby, it's very normal for you to be nervous right, about taking that baby outside. So you can only imagine how that fear is so much larger because of a pandemic. And then I think regression is also something that's been very common. So regression is when a child who has achieved certain developmental milestones, let's say like a four-year-old who's potty trained and all of a sudden 
what feels like out of the blue, they start having accidents. That's something that we've seen a lot of over the course of this year. And then I'd say, you know, once we get into the school age children, let's say like five to 10, we've definitely seen struggles with remote learning, particularly for children who have learning difficulties, right, or special needs in other ways, and also sibling conflict and parent-child conflict. So I remember I had this one family who, you know, the little boy was like, my mom, I just feel like she's criticizing me a lot more. And mom was confused about why he was saying that. And, you know, I just kind of explained to both of them. And I said, well, actually, before the pandemic, mom, you would see him before school. You would see him after school. You would see him on the weekends. But now you're his parent and his teacher. And so you're probably having to set limits for many more hours. And so you probably are (laughs) having, you know, to make those kind of comments more. And then I think for our adolescents, quite a bit of anxiety and depression. Yeah, I've been hearing some of this secondhand from people with children. But now that we're in the reopening zone, what are some of the new questions that are coming up? It's, It's exciting, but it's also anxiety producing. So it's interesting. I I have a couple of teenagers who, you know, when we're in New York City, obviously, and so when the option to go in person became available in the spring as our infection rates went down, they started going back Um, and then they changed their mind. And when I would ask them, why did you change your mind? They said, you know, they were worried about catching the virus. But a lot of kids have who have developed anxiety over this pandemic, there's somewhat of a, of a relief in maybe like being home, hiding at home a little bit, which from a child development perspective is not something I want to continue, right, forever. So I'm actually very happy that New York City public schools will not be offering a remote option come September. Let's look at another big issue that's been on the minds of parents and kids, which is the racial reckoning. It has been really painful for people of all ages to have to grapple with these issues. And so how do you deal with that? How do you advise parents and young people to deal with that emotional energy? Thank you for asking that question. When the George Floyd murder took place last summer, Our leadership team decided that we wanted to pilot screening questions about the impact of racism and bias and just make that a standard part of our intake process. So after piloting the questions for a few months, you know, we were able to conduct a chart review. And so now we actually have some data that is preliminary, but I'm happy to share with your listeners. 40% of the patients who had been asked reported some level of impact. Parents and many of our adolescents described feeling sad, angry and upset, stressed, scared. And the profile of this 40% was majority Black, so about 36% were Black, 25% was Latinx, and then also some Asian, some white, and other, which are likely like multiracial, multi-ethnic respondents. 
And what about immigrant families and children? Are you paying special attention to what they've been dealing with this year? I can share with you that even, you know, prior to the pandemic, with the changes and the federal guidance around immigration, our team had done a lot of trainings around how to help parents in particular and patients feel safe to disclose what might be provoking their anxiety. Because, you know, one out of four Hispanic children in the United States has an undocumented parent. So we did a lot of trainings, you know, for our clinicians around that issue. And I think, you know, with the pandemic, it only made things more stressful, particularly for that segment of the Latinx community. And when we think about the summer, I have such fond memories of going to Girl Scout camp and feeling very privileged to have those experiences. Um, Is there anything that you can say to parents looking out for what their kids should do this summer? Any pointers? So one of the things I recommend to families and parents with children is to take advantage of the outdoors this summer and developing a routine around that, right? So that you're doing that with your family at least two times a week, hopefully four or five times a week. That would be my best advice. And you might see me with my family in the park. Now, what are you taking out of this whole pandemic season and bringing back into the reopening as a healthcare professional? One of the silver linings of the pandemic was that it forced my institution to accelerate our adoption of telehealth. And so one of the things that we have done successfully over the course of the pandemic is we're conducting groups over telehealth. And it's actually our teen groups that have been the most successful. So we run teen anxiety groups, teen depression groups. We also run groups for new moms, moms with new babies, another parenting group for parents with picky eaters. And we have had the most success we've ever had in running groups, which has always been a challenge for us in in primary care. And I don't see that going away. I think if a family has the technology, offering them the option to do therapy over video or participate in a group over video is really increasing access. And clearly not all families have you know, internet bandwidth. And, you know, that's also something that we have to tackle as a society. But for those families that do, this has clearly increased their access to mental health services. And so that is definitely a silver lining and something that our program will be keeping, even as we recover from this this pandemic. Thank you so much, Dr. Herman. Take care. That was Dr. Miguelina Herman, Director of Pediatric Behavioral Health Services at Montefiore Medical Group in the Bronx. Dr. Herman recommended families spend time in the outdoors. Our next guest is all about getting kids, and especially girls of color, out in nature. 
My name is Angelica Holmes. I am a leader over at Black Outside Inc., which is the umbrella organization of Camp Founder Girls, where I am co-director of our summer camp for girls. The mission of Camp Founder Girls is to teach their campers four core skills, strength, bravery, creativity, and confidence. It's a camp in Texas specifically for Black girls. I think that Black girls are really at a very interesting intersection of a lot of different marginalized identities and a lot of the spaces and places that they take up often don't affirm those identities. So we really think that it's important for us to create a space that they feel like they can really thrive and feel like they're really seen and can really be developed as the people that they are. The Outdoor Foundation's national survey in 2019 found that about half of the U.S. population doesn't participate in outdoor recreation at all. And Black youth have the lowest participation rate of kids in any ethnic group. Holmes says there are many institutional barriers that explain this, but also that just exposing kids to the outdoors in small doses can be enough to begin reversing that trend. Another thing is just straight up, if we as a people aren't going out in our groups, you know, if that's not the location that your family goes or um, if you're not introduced to the outdoors early on, you might not know where to go, what to do. So that's why with Black Outside, we're very youth focused because we know that if you just get a little peek into the possibilities, you know, you might say, I've never been surfing, but um, I I remember I went camping when I was 12 with Black Outside, and I know that I love the outdoors, so I'm going to try these new things. So we obviously can't have kids try everything, but our hope is that we can have them dibble and dabbling enough to where it just sparks their interest to be interested in it lifelong. For Holmes, her interest in the outdoors started when she went camping as an elementary school student. And those were some of the most formative times of my life. That was my first time I really saw myself being a leader. I think when we are immersed in nature, we really get to see a different side of ourselves. Um, We really get to see how big the world is. And you might use skills and um, features that you didn't even know that you had. So the outdoors can be really impactful. In these times, everybody is pushing towards technology and, you know, more screen time and faster. And, you know, I'm kind of leaning towards the opposite. I think we need a little bit more balance. So when we take our kids out into these adventures, a lot of times the main feedback that they give is that they loved having time away from their phones. They loved not having to worry about what was going on in their timelines. I'm not a parent. And when I was younger, I never understood how cautious my mom was of not letting me go outside. I felt like she was so overprotective and didn't want me to go play. I felt like she was always cramping my style. But now the older that I get, um, now I find myself when I'm watching kids, I, I get so nervous. I'm like, don't jump over those things. You know, you don't need to be doing that. You need to stay on the path and be safe, you know, stay where it's safe. But I think that the beauty about kids is that they just have so much adventure in them and so much creativity. And so I really encourage parents to let the kids, you know, obviously teach them boundaries. But I think it's so important to just let kids explore. We really stifle their creativity when we force them to be behind screens and when we force them to think about things in the way that we do as adults. The summer camp is on this month, doing lots of COVID testing and making sure staff is vaccinated. They've learned so much about running a safer camp thanks to the pandemic. We recognized that a lot of people 
were realizing that the outdoors were one of the only places that were really safe. So we had some day camps where the girls would come and be socially distant in pods, you know, with masks on outside. I don't even think that we realized how much we needed the outdoors until COVID hit. Um, I mean, even me, I work for an outdoor organization and I tell people all day to get outside, you know, and I didn't realize that even just stepping out on my balcony could just be so therapeutic, just breathing a little fresh air after, um, you know, just being contained for so long. So it's definitely been really important. I think with our youth even more so, I don't even know that we have seen or will see the full extent of, you know, everybody's mental health for just being indoors for so long. Holmes says for families, this summer is an opportunity to make up for lost time. Families don't have to overthink it, and the benefits are enormous. There are lots of activities that you can do just walking, you know. I mean, it sounds cheesy, but just walk into the mailbox or just walk in down your street. There are sensory activities we like to do with five, four, three, two, one. Five things you see, four things you smell, three things you hear, two things you touch, and one thing you taste, which hopefully is just the fresh air. So things like that you can do, just fun activities, just taking a few minutes outside, walking around your neighborhood. When I was a kid, I used to just bike in my neighborhood. I didn't really consider that being outdoors, but, you know, I got all of those benefits from just breathing that fresh air. There are also neighborhood parks, city parks, state parks. You know, if y'all can, you know, just make a trip of something. It doesn't have to be super intense. Uh, You don't have to be backpacking through the wilderness to be taking in the benefits of being outdoors. You know, y'all could start a little garden. There are lots of ways to bond as a family in particular in the outdoors that aren't super intensive. Angelica Holmes is the interim executive director of Black Outside, Inc. and co-director of Camp Founder Girls in Texas. Thank you so much for joining us on Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Juleka Lantigua Williams is executive producer. Paulina Velasco is senior producer. Jen Chien is executive editor. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mixed this episode. Our producer is Priscilla Alabi. Julie Zan is our talent consultant. Emily Daly is assistant producer. Original music by associate sound designer Kojin Tashiro. Production assistance from Mark Betancourt, Natina Bean, and Sarah McClure. This program is produced with support from Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.